Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, and uh, I want to say thanks, as we have every week, to our singers who are welcoming us into each uh, message in this series. And again, I want to say to each one of you who hasn't uh, uh, gotten up your courage and gone out there and uh, done a little church karaoke, uh, we'd love to have you join us um, as well. We have plenty more spots for you as we continue through this series. Well, I want to welcome you to week number three of our series, Jesus Loves Me, and we are in this series exploring some essential Christian beliefs. And the point of this series is simply this, what do we need to believe about God in order to access the power of God through Jesus? And we're taking this uh, kid's song that we all know, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So, and we're using that as a memory tool uh, that we can just carry with us through life to help us remember what we're learning. And uh, my prayer for this series actually is just simply this, is that if anyone, you know, someone, somewhere, sometime was to ask you, who is Jesus and what do I need to understand and believe to follow him, then you would be able to tell them uh, by using these very, very familiar words. And we've summed up for you uh, what we're talking about in this series on this uh, summary card that if you haven't gotten one, you can uh, pick one up on your way out. It tells you each week what we'll be focusing on and you can keep it with you as kind of a way to review and uh, uh, remember what you have been learning. And if you're here last week, you remember that we, we learned together who Jesus is. And we asked that question, what do you have to believe about Jesus in order to actually plug in to the power of God? And we learned that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not one among many gods. Jesus is actually the one true God. He's fully God. He's fully human. And when you surrender your life to who he is, to that reality, then you will plug into the very power source of the universe. And as we've been seeing each week, it's not complicated, but it's precise. There's truth we need to grasp and truth we need to hold on to. And the reason that Jesus had to be the one true God, fully God and fully human, is that God the Father sent God the Son on a rescue mission to save the world. And that's what we're gonna be focusing on today, that word loves, Jesus loves. And it's really about this question that I think everybody everywhere always has and it boils down to this, does God love me? Does God love me and, and how can I know? And I kind of think it's at the point of this that sometimes people get confused about Christianity and sometimes it's the fault of Christians, people like us. We put the wrong message out there, but it's not that uncommon. Sometimes people think Christianity is it's just about rules. They see Christianity as this list of, of rules. And if you think that, you know, that it's do this and don't do that, you gotta keep the rules, you gotta keep them all the time. If you experience Christianity as rules before relationship, then kind of why would you wanna do that? But the truth is, that's not who Jesus is. That's not what Christianity is about. And if you go and read about Jesus, you'll see that Jesus always led not with rules, but with relationship. 
And you hear it in everything he talked about. Uh, for example, John three sixteen, most famous verse in the Bible. And don't forget, Jesus is the one speaking here. He says, for God so what? Loved the world. And the world is, is people, people like you and like me. This is relational language. Jesus loves us. And, and he's describing why he came. You can go later on to the Gospel of John uh, to what's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer right before he's crucified. It's in John 17. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God. Now, he's praying to God the Father, his Father, and he's praying not about people knowing a bunch of rules, but about people, you and me, knowing God. Now, this doesn't diminish rules. The Bible has rules, and, and rules in authentic love, they always follow relationship. There are rules, and, but rules are meant to be expressions of love that protect the strength of a relationship, but, but they never precede it. See, it's not to be based on rules first. It's always relationship first. And it's so important that we get this. I wanna illustrate it like this. Uh, my wife, Dana, and I are in our 36th year of marriage, and, and it's been great, um, especially for Dana. <laughs> Just kidding. It's been more amazing for me, and that's the truth. But, but here's the thing. Think about this, and you can put yourself into this one. Uh, when I was in college, before I met Dana, like if someone had come to me and explained to me, you know, the rules of marriage and family, you know, before I had the relationship, well, I don't know if I would have done it. And maybe you know some of the rules. Some of you will be familiar with these rules. Maybe you'll have some other rules, but you'll know these rules, like the rule of the bathroom. She rules the bathroom. And you have to put the toilet seat down, even if there's no real purpose in doing that, because you're not living in your dorm room anymore. And then there's the rule of the closet. You both share the closet. Her shares 80%, and Yours is 20%, right? I hear the amens out there from the guys. There, there's the rule of bed making. You have to make the bed every day, even though there's really no purpose in this because we're just gonna get in it again at night, right? <laughs> and then there's the auxiliary bed making rule that there will be hundreds of pillows on the bed that you cannot actually use because they are there for decoration, even though no one actually goes into the bedroom to look at the pillows. It's just a rule. And then there's a rule of money. You get none. The family gets it all, right? And all the men said, there's the rule of hobbies, you get none, and eventually all of your money goes to your kids' hobbies. There's, there's the rule of sleep, you get none. Your kids keep you up late. They wake you up in the middle of the night and then they wake you up early. Have you ever noticed how that works? I mean, it makes no sense. There's the rule of privacy. And again, you get none. You know, you cannot go into your kid's bedroom because they need privacy. But, but they'll walk into your bedroom anytime they feel like it, right? I don't know, maybe to see the pillows or something. But <laughs> There's the rule of having nice stuff and it's you get no nice stuff. No stuff stays nice. The kids will vomit on your new couch. The dog will destroy your carpet and your furniture. If you have good stuff, your kids are gonna break it or wear it out, you know. And then there's the rule of vacations. You get none because it's their vacation and you have to come back from vacation to recover from the vacation and then you have to go back to work so you can pay for the next vacation. 
And then there's the, the rule of free time. And again, you, you get none. And you could keep going with this, but there they are. These are the rules for marriage and family. And I just wanna say this, if you had read that to me while I was in college, I think I might have found the idea of marriage and family kind of distasteful. I might never have gotten married. But the moment that I meet Dana and I fall in love and we begin to build a friendship, the the moment that we begin to live together as husband and wife and out of that loving relationship we have children and they have names and they own my, my heart, well then all those rules start making sense. And I actually joyfully accept them. Do you see the difference? It's, it's led with relationship. And you know, as family goes on, it's critical that my, my kids understand the history of Dana and I coming together, the love that we've built and how they're an expression of it. And you might even say it this way, our, our kids come from a relationship of love and they are there for a relationship of love. And here's the point, that's Christianity. We were created from a relationship of love for a relationship of love. God is love, and he wants to share that love. You see, this is why it is so important that we know that God loves us and that we, as his beloved, are able to help other people come to know and experience that love because we live in a world that is so lacking in love, right? So full of hate. And in this kind of a world, it's oftentimes, isn't it hard for people to believe that God actually loves them? So here's kind of a focusing question for this morning. Um, How can you really know if someone loves you? In other words, how do we know, first of all, if God loves us? I think the Apostle Paul, in the passage we're gonna be looking at today, gives really the best answer of all. It's Romans chapter five, it's verses six through 11, and you might wanna turn there either uh, in your copy of God's word, turn on your device and get there. And I want you to listen to what Paul writes. Beginning in verse six, it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So how do we know How do we know someone loves us? And the answer, which I think you understand, is that love always proves itself in action. How do we know if Jesus loves us? And the answer is 
because he acted. He didn't just say he loved us. He came down to earth and he demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross. And the cross, Paul is telling us, is the greatest demonstration, the greatest proof of God's love for us. Does Jesus love me? Yes. How do I know? Look at the cross. Some of you may be familiar with Charles Wesley's beautiful old hymn puts it like this, amazing love, how can it be that God, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, what I want us to see this morning as we study God's word is is three ways that we see God's love demonstrated in the cross, Jesus' death there, and we're gonna unpack these ways with three questions. And the first question is this, you can write this down in your message notes. The first question is, who died on the cross? And the first thing I want you to see is we know God's love by who it was who died on the cross. And and just notice this, look through the passage. In verse six, it says Christ died. In verse eight, it says Christ died. In verse 10, it says his son. Then in verse 11, it says our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we must start. The love of God in the cross is first seen in who died on that cross. Who died? Well, this is what we talked about the entire message last week. The one who died on the cross was God's only son, the second person of the triune God. The Bible teaches us as we read it and study it that there is one true God. That one true God is manifested in three persons, all co-equal, in essence, all eternal, all possessing the same divine attributes. The Bible teaches us that in eternity past, God decided, he foreordained that he would send his only son into the world to redeem sinful man. He did this even before man was created in the Garden of Eden, even before uh, mankind sinned and fell. God himself loved us, and he loved us in his son, Jesus, by dying on the cross. And see, when we begin to think about that, when we take that seriously, we are brought face to face with God's amazing love. And I wanna encourage you, if you don't do this, you should regularly, regularly, even daily, think deeply about this reality. God died for me on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. You know, at least for me, thinking about who died on the cross makes me, makes me think of some hymns that I've known for a long, long time. Hymns like Isaac Watts' a famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, where it says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And there's another verse that says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Just to think, just to think that God would die for me on the cross. You may remember what we looked at last week. John 1, 1 
tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then uh, that eternal word became the personal word. John 1.14 says he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came to earth to live with us. God the son became a man. He became like us in every way except one. He was without sin. Fully God, as though he were not man. Fully human, as though he were not God, and yet he was one person. And and like we talked about last week, you may still be thinking, I can't comprehend that. I can't wrap my mind around that. Well, welcome to the club. (laughs) I mean, who could wrap their mind around something as awesome as that, that God the Son would leave eternity, come down from heaven, and through the womb of a virgin be born as an infant and become fully human. And then that it would be the God-man who would die, who would give on the cross his life for man, the creature's sin. So the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Listen again to John three sixteen, where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world. Now, we're gonna focus, because Paul does, on the kind of world that God loved in in just a moment. But understanding love, God's love for us starts right here as as I realize what the cross is and I ponder the meaning of the cross and I never leave the cross. I'm always remembering the cross because it is central, it is foundational to every single thing that we believe. Someone once said he hung upon a cross of wood, but he made the hill on which it stood. And that is an amazing thought that God himself would be there and be spat on, that he himself would be crucified, that he himself would voluntarily give his life for me on the cross. That's the first way that we see the love of God demonstrated in the cross. Here's the second way. We see it also in who Jesus died for. And our second question is just that, who did Jesus die for? And the answer to that question is uh, focused in verse eight of Romans five in that little phrase, for us. Verse eight says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the Bible teaches that, that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitutionary death, that he, he took your place, he took my place on the cross. In other words, you and I should have been there, we should have died on the cross, but Jesus substituted himself for us. It's a demonstration, it's a proof of God's love that, that he would come and he would die and he would die in my place. And again, don't forget, Jesus didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have any. Jesus died for our sins. He was the pure and holy and sinless son of God. His death was a substitutionary death. It's what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would come and he'd be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes, we would be healed. He took our place on the cross. And that's so unbelievable. But it gets even more unbelievable when you begin to unpack and understand who Jesus actually died for. I want you to notice how Paul 
describes the people for whom Jesus died in this passage. And again, don't forget those people are us, right? Say, it's me. He's describing each one of us. And there are four words that Paul uses. Notice in verse six, the first word is the word powerless. We were powerless. Jesus died for us when we were powerless, without strength. Jesus did not say to us, get your act together and I'll die for you. No, he died for us when we had nothing to offer, when we couldn't do anything. What were we powerless to do? Well, we were powerless to actually even seek God. I want you to notice another passage a couple chapters earlier in Romans. This is Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. And Paul here is quoting a number of Old Testament verses, passages. He says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in those verses, he's describing what it looks like to be powerless spiritually. Now, this is the first of four words I'm gonna show you, but underneath this heading, I wanna give you, I wanna give you uh, four things that Paul is telling us about being powerless. First of all, being powerless spiritually means we can't get right with God. We can't. No one is righteous, not even one. In our sin and our rebellion, we can't do anything that gives us right standing with God. You know, you will hear me tell you, you should come to church, and you should. If you've never been baptized, you're gonna hear me tell you, you should be baptized and you should. You hear me all the time tell you, you need to be reading God's word and you should. But none of those things or any of the other things that God commands us to do can make us right with God. There's nothing any of us can do in our own effort. Why? Well, the second reason we're powerless spiritually is we can't understand God. There's no one who understands God, Paul says, and the Bible teaches without being born into God's family, you cannot comprehend the things of God. The, the mind of the flesh cannot understand the mind of the spirit. We don't have that capacity because we're spiritually dead. And that's third, why we don't seek God. Again, before, before I was born again in my natural, sinful, unregenerate state, I didn't have that capacity to seek after God my natural bent, my instinct, my reflex, what I do by default every single day is I seek my sin, I seek my selfishness. I don't want God. See, we go our own way. That's what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone our own way. Everyone is turned away. We're powerless to seek God. And then fourth, we're, we're powerless to please him. No one does good. Not even one. See, we cannot please God in our own strength. He's talking about what's good in God's eyes. And, and Paul is just telling us in these verses that there is only one thing, only one thing that can make us right with God, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we are those who have been died for by Jesus, even though we were powerless in no way deserving him. 
You say, well, how do I come to him if I'm powerless? Well, that's also part of what makes God's grace so amazing. Jesus in John, uh, the Gospel of John said, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And so what happens, the Bible says, is the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life prior to conversion. And before you're born again, the Holy Spirit brings life and makes you alive and opens your eyes so that you see your need for repentance. And now you want to respond, you want to repent, you want to believe, you want to be saved. I don't know how many of you, if you've come to faith as an adult, have ever stopped to think about the things that happened around that, that season, that time when you trusted. I mean, how did you come to the knowledge that you needed Jesus? How did you come to the place where you thought and you, you even said, I, I wanna trust in him? And what the Bible tells us, it's the grace, the utter grace of God. It's the work of God's Holy Spirit God loving you, reaching out to you, convicting you and convincing you and drawing you to Jesus. And you know, I'm, I'm sure some of you remember that time in your life and you were just running away from God and you were running as fast as you could, you were running as far as you could and, and then suddenly one day and whether it happened through the witness of a friend or maybe through a sermon or a teaching that you heard or maybe it happened through you reading the Bible, all of a sudden, you just began to sense your need for God. You began, and you didn't even understand it, to just want God. And ultimately, whether you, you realized it or not at the time, it wasn't because you were seeking God, it was because God was seeking you in love. And it could be, it could be, I don't know, that this is happening today in this room right now. Maybe it started recently, maybe it's just starting. And if that's you, I just wanna say, don't run anymore because you can't outrun him. He will chase you down in his love and he always captures the ones he chases so submit to him, surrender to him, come to him because God loved you through Jesus when you were powerless. That's that first word. Here's the, the second word. It's also in verse six. Paul describes us as ungodly, ungodly. Now this word ungodly means that we were just living our lives as if there was no God. There was no fear of God in our lives. And doesn't that describe the culture that we're living in today? No fear of God before their eyes. And more and more and more and more people around us are living like this. It's like, I don't believe in God. I don't think about God. I don't fear God. I'm not gonna answer to God. I don't care about God. That's how so many people, that's how most people actually live their lives. No awareness that they will have to answer to God someday. And here's the point. That's the way all of us were living before we were saved. All of us. But you see, God, God loved us so much that he reached past our ungodliness and he died for us. See, some of you here today and you, you've known the grace of God for a long time, maybe decades. But maybe you've forgotten who you were and how you lived before you knew. 
Take time to remember today. Thank God today for his amazing love that, that he demonstrated in Jesus' death for you on the cross. Who did Jesus die for? Well, here's the third word. Not only were we powerless and ungodly, we were also sinners. And we don't like that word today, right? I mean, you know, if you wanna start a fight at the office tomorrow, just tell someone they're a sinner. See what happens. And some of us are afraid to ever use the word because our culture says that's judgmental, that's unloving. But I wanna tell you, we see it right here. It's God's word and it describes us. It describes who we are apart from Christ. Romans 5, 8 says we were sinners. And the Bible tells us because uh, it's because we have fallen short of God's standards. Many of you have memorized Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we've all sinned. That means we're all sinners. There's no exception. And in this verse, Romans 3.23, uh, the Greek word for sin, maybe you've heard this before, is the word that means we've missed the mark. It's like there's a target and we're shooting an arrow at the target and we miss the target. We, we fall short of the target. We fall short of God's standard. And we do that in all kinds of ways. How many of you, you have like a, a wide, wide variety of ways you sin? Some of you aren't raising your hand and that's another way that you do it. You won't admit it, right? We have a lot of different ways that we sin, and I could kind of, kind of sum them up in in, in this way. I'm, we sin sometimes deliberately, right? Anybody willing to raise their hand? You don't have to tell us what you did, but but you're cognizant right now that last week you sinned one time deliberately. You knew what it was and you did it anyway, and hopefully you've already confessed it to the Lord, right? We sometimes sin deliberately. We sometimes sin willfully. I, I sinned a lot yesterday because I got stuck in the grapevine for three and a half hours. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I've repented of that sin yet. I, I'm still having to get over it. But stuff happens, and sometimes we sin deliberately, even when we don't know, we don't know that. Uh, sometimes we do it deliberately, and then other times we don't know that we're doing it, right? We, we just do it unconsciously. We say things, stuff comes out of our mouths, and we didn't really plan to do that. But it's not okay just because you didn't plan to say that. Sometimes we, we sin and we don't even realize we're, we're sinning. We have all kinds of sin in our lives. Why? Because we are what? Sinners. We're sinners. We're sin, sinners who sin against God. We're sinners who sin against people. But here's Paul's point. God still loves us. You should say amen louder than that. God still loves us. And this awareness that God loves sinners should cause uh, gratitude in our hearts to well up. It should cause us to hate sin because we see how destructive it is. It should cause us to love God more and more. And what you should be thinking right now is Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me, a sinner. I'm a sinner, but he died for me, praise God. So we're powerless we're ungodly, we're sinners, and there's one more description. It's in verse 10. Uh, Jesus died for us who were his enemies. Verse 10 says, for when we were enemies. And again, uh, a lot of people say, I've never been the enemy of God. We don't like to think of ourselves as enemies, but that's how God describes everyone who's apart from him before they're saved, before they come to know him. We were actually enemies of God. Now, let's be clear. God was not our enemy. It doesn't say that. 
We were God's enemies. We were at enmity with God. And that's what we're going to see that, that reconciliation is in these last few verses, that, that God destroys the enmity between us so that we can now be God's friends, so that we can now come back into relationship with God. You see, put this all together, and it's just so amazing. What the cross did for us, proving the love of God for us, it made enemies friends, it made strangers citizens. We were brought back into a relationship with God. Now, I hope that what you are seeing as we're putting this all together, this description of who Christ died for that Paul gives us, I hope you are seeing that this explains why the world is so messed up. Now, our book, if you've been following along in the book, uh, talks about orca whales. And some of you know this, some of you have watched that movie uh, Blackfish and seen maybe some other documentaries, how when orca whales are captured and confined in aquariums or sea parks, Oftentimes, their, their dorsal fin, which is designed, created by God to be straight up, will flop over on its side. And it's a sign they're depressed. Question is why? Well, the, the answer is because they were made to roam oceans, not swim around in man-made tanks. Uh, I read one thing that said an orca in a normal day in the wild, it would take him swimming around his tank doing 4,280 laps around that tank. They were, they were made to be free. God didn't create them to live as slaves to this tank in which they are confined. And in the same way, God didn't create us for sin. God didn't make you to be a powerless, ungodly, sinful enemy of his. God made you to be his child. God created you for beauty and love and life and light. And that's what he's doing in the cross. He's bringing that evil back. He's restoring what we've destroyed and he's showing his love for us through the cross. God gave his only son, Jesus, to die for sinners like me, like you. In my weakness, in my ungodliness, in my sin, in my rebellion, he died. Now here's the third way. The cross of Jesus demonstrates God loves us. We've seen first of all who died and that's Christ. Second, who did he die for? That's sinners. And then third question is why did Jesus die? Why did Christ die? Well, look at verse nine. It says, he died for our justification. Verse nine says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And, and justification means that we have been made right with God. We've been made right with God. Jesus died to make us right with him. This is showing us his love. That leads to the next reason Jesus died. Also in verse nine, it's that word saved. He died so that we might be saved, our salvation. And what Paul is doing here is, is something he does a number of times in his letters. He's using an argument that's called from the lesser to the greater. And the idea is this, if Jesus died for us while we were enemies, now that we belong to him and we are reconciled to him, how much more will we be saved because we belong to him. It's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Old theologian, 19th century, uh, Charles Hodge said, if the greater benefit has been bestowed, the lesser will not be withheld. 
Christ died for his enemies, he will surely save his friends. And so verse nine is telling us that not only are we made right with God justified, but we are now going to be saved by his blood from the wrath of God. So we are justified by the blood, by the cross, the death of Jesus Christ. We are saved by, uh, by his death from God's wrath. And it just reminds us something that should be comforting, especially when you fail. No Christian will ever experience the wrath of God because that wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ loves me and he proved it by dying to justify me, to save me, by taking my punishment, by experiencing the wrath of God himself so that I would not have to. And by the way, this is the reason why Romans 8.28 is true, right? It's because of Jesus' work on the cross that all things work together for good to those of us who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You are his very own. And, and also, by the way, running through this section of Romans is the, is the teaching of the security of believers that, that Jesus is going to do all of those things if he does all of these things for us when we were his enemies. What do you think he's gonna do for us now that we belong to him? And I'll tell you what he's gonna do. He's going to keep us safe. He's gonna keep us safe. You know, all of this reminds us that salvation is, is a free gift, but it's not cheap. It, it costs God the Father his son. It costs God the Son his very life. It's free for us. We are saved by grace, but it's not cheap. It comes at an incredible, infinite price. So why did Jesus die? Third, we're not only justified and saved, we're also reconciled. Look at verses 10 and 11. For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So God's no longer our enemy. We are now at peace with him. We've been reconciled. And then that leads to rejoicing, verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so what we can do now as followers of Christ is we can actually find joy in God. It's not just about knowing things about him, but about knowing him. We have actually a relationship with him. And again, this is the entire point of God's creation of the universe. It's the entire point of the Bible. God reveals himself in Jesus Christ to show us his love and God proves that love on the cross despite who all of us are. See, reconciliation means that everything that has separated us from God has now been removed. Reconciliation means now I am free to live in relationship with God and God is offering that gift of salvation to all. It's a gift, it's free. Anyone can receive it, but everyone has to receive it. A few years ago, I shared this story with you. You may remember this story and maybe you remember from reading about it back in 2010, the story of the 33 miners in Chile who were three miles underground when their mine collapsed on top of them. And for two weeks, the whole world thought they were all dead. 
But suddenly, someone figured out that they were alive. They were still living down at the bottom of the mine shaft. And what followed was one of the greatest rescue missions in human history. People came from all over the world to help the Chilean government try to rescue these men. NASA sent their top engineers. I mean, everyone was working together trying to help them figure out how can we rescue these men buried three miles underground. Here's a diagram of the mine and the, the rescue operation that showed up in, in some magazines. And it's, it's, it's this very complex, you can tell, looking at this. Their first attempt to rescue them didn't work. They went at it another way. Second attempt, that didn't work. And finally, the third time, after drilling three miles through solid rock, they made their way into a chamber where these men were where they could be rescued. And you know, I, I was thinking about this. This is a great picture of how Romans 5, 6 through 11 depicts humanity now. God tells us that every one of us, we were born into a world that's fallen, a world that's collapsed, a world of darkness, a world of death. And we weren't created for that. We were created in God's image and so in this dark world that's collapsed, we, humanity still by God's grace accomplishes some noble things like major rescue efforts. But by the end of the day, when all is said and done, we are in a mine shaft and we can't get out. You know, none of us is gonna live more than probably about 90 years. And at the end of the day, even the best things that, that happen down here, they get tainted by, by cancer and by divorce and by abuse and violence, just plain evil. And so what the Bible tells us is that Jesus, God's son, he came and he came to this world and he cut through the fabric of the universe, the God who created everything, he cut through the fabric of the universe and he made an escape tunnel. He made a way out that way is the cross. He paid for our sin. And Jesus said, whoever believes in me, I am the way, the truth, the life, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He said, through me, you can find life. So these miners down there in Chile from, from August until October of 2010 for 69 days, they lived in darkness knowing that people were trying to rescue them. Rescue was hopefully coming from above. Finally, finally rescue did come and it came in the form of a capsule. They, they called it the Phoenix. And here's a picture of this rescue capsule. And here's the way this worked. You had to get in this capsule and it was one person at a time. Just one person at a time. And you know, this is really how it is with God. This is how it is with the gospel. God has done the work that we could never do on our own. He has made the sacrifice to drill down into our lives. This rescue capsule would, would slide down this, this mine shaft for three miles. It would thump down at the bottom of the mine shaft, like three miles underground. And when it did, there was a point in which each single person, each man, had to decide for himself, will I step into this thing? And you know, it had to be a little claustrophobic, right? And once you get in it, you get strapped in, you're gonna have to trust that this wire, cable, rope, whatever it was, is gonna be able to pull you up for three miles. If that thing breaks, you're not coming back up, right? 
And they all had to, they all had to make this decision. They all had to, to trust, will I put my faith in that? And by putting their faith in the rescue capsule, the miners were acknowledging they couldn't do it on their own. Now, we know this really wouldn't have ever happened, but wouldn't it have been tragic if those, one of those 33 miners decided, you know, after all that effort to get them out, decided, hey, I, this is not the way for me. I have a flashlight, I have a pickaxe. I'm gonna figure this one out myself. This way, it's fine for you guys. Kind of seems narrow to say this is the only way out. I'm gonna do it another way. I'll find my own way to the service. That would have been so sad. But you already know, some of you, as you think about this, that's what many people do when it comes to Jesus. They hear Jesus is the only way. That seems narrow. I'll find my own way. Well, Jesus did say the way out is narrow. But here's the beautiful reality. That narrow way is open to everyone. Everyone can come. And all you need to do is trust in him. All you need to do is repent of your sins, your own way of running your life. All you need to do is believe in Jesus, that his death on the cross paid for your sin, that his resurrection from the grave gives you eternal life. Do that and you can be rescued. You can be saved. Jesus is God's own son, fully God, fully human. And Jesus loves you. And he proved, he proved that love for you on the cross, demonstrating his love by dying for your sins. If you don't know him today, I pray that you will meet him by repenting and by believing. If you do know him today, my prayer is that you will rejoice and give thanks because God is so good. He loved us in his son. And because of Jesus, we can know eternal life. Amen? Amen. This is God's word for us today. Would you bow your heads as we pray together?